The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth." Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all of the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Abby. So many of you may know and heard me say um, and heard us say this, that the Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church Music Row. Um, We actually have more than one location. We actually have four. And uh, one of those is led by uh, a friend of mine who's kind of an old friend that I've known before I was even the pastor here, a guy named Russ Ramsey. Uh, Some of you may remember Russ has actually preached here and uh, he is the 
uh, lead pastor of our Cool Springs location, which is great. In fact, we've actually had people who've moved that direction when we planted that church, and um, it's really been exciting to see them a part of that. Rust and I joke often that uh, I will often encourage and equip him with sports knowledge, <laughs> and because that's just not his thing. But what he talks about a lot, and many of you may follow his Instagram, and I hope you do. I'm actually giving him kind of a plug here, uh, that he talks a lot about his love for art. He'll say, hey, a lot of people talk SEC football. When I talk about my love and passion, it's about art and artists. And it's beautiful. I love how he does that. And I was actually talking to him this week, and I was talking about this passage and said to him, hey, you know, and I, I love art. And one of the things that uh, when I do, I look to him and others to help equip me further in depth of that because I, I really appreciate it, but de definitely don't know it to the knowledge and strength that he does. But I was asking him kind of about just some artists and some understanding of, you know, some certain artists in their age and such. And he sent me this uh graphic of this painting that I want to talk about for a second. I, I hardly ever do this, but this is actually uh, Rembrandt. And, um, and I don't know if you know, even if you're not an artist or follow art much, you've, you've probably heard of Rembrandt, but this is a painting that when he was just 25 years old, he drew, and it's Jesus' presentation in the temple. And one of the things about it, and this is that passage. We, we actually talk about this presentation during Christmas. This is when Jesus was a baby and uh, was presented in the temple to Simeon. And, and as you see in this, and, and one of the things that, that Russ and I talked about was, if you look at this painting, when Rembrandt was young, you see just a lot of people. There's actually more. It's hard with the light behind it to see how many people are actually painted into this painting. The color, it's very crisp. Uh, it's sharp. You can see the, the architecture. There's so much within it. And you can actually see some of what the detail, you can, you can just tell at this moment in his life, Rembrandt was taking his time and wanted to show and prove to everybody as a 25-year-old painter, this is what it's like to be me. I'm going to show you how good I really am. And, he, and as, you know, as I love that Russ told me, he said, this is like when Rembrandt was flex, flexing his artistic muscles. But then he showed me another painting. And this is Rembrandt's uh, painting that happened years later. In fact, he, when Rembrandt was in his 60s, in fact, the year of his death, that he painted a very similar painting. This is Simeon's song. So the same scene of Jesus being held by Simeon in the temple but a very different picture, very contrast. You can tell a lot fewer people, three compared to 20 some odd painted in the other one. You can see it's not as crisp or sharp as the other one. There's no architecture. It's very simple. It's just a close up. And in fact, even in the other picture, there's this illumination of light that comes from Jesus in the middle. This one is just an old man holding baby Jesus and very plain. And as we were looking at this and talking about it, one of the things that we realized that, that, that Russ was helping me see is you see the contrast between these two, and you can put them up next to each other. You see the contrast of, of someone who was flexing their muscle, so to speak, as an artist, to someone who, even in the year of his death, seeing his age, feeling himself, who he is, 
and really moving to the simplicity of someone who suffered. By this time on the second painting here, Rembrandt had gone bankrupt. He had already lost and buried both his wife and child. He had seen his career taken off. And at this point, he had seen it come crashing down. And you see someone in this second painting who's actually suffered, who's felt the lament of life. You know, we're looking at the Psalms, and I don't know if you caught it in the Psalm where we just had read. I know it was a lengthy one, but it layers itself over and over. And if you caught it, you heard the psalmist talk, not just about his youth, but about his age. Even mentions things like his gray hairs. He talks about his youth, something far in the past. Someone who has actually seen a lot of life behind them and now is looking at what it looks like to gaze across the, the chronology of his own life and even where he is presently to feel what is it like to suffer? What's it like to go through hard things in life? and to still look to God faithfully. What does that mean? It's actually considered in the genre. We've looking at genres of Psalms, and that means different categories, right? And so we're looking this week at the Psalm of lament. What is lament? What does it mean to suffer well? What does it mean, regardless of where you are and how old you are in this room, what does it mean for you to look at your life right now and begin to go, how do I suffer well? How do I access, and this is what we're going to really look at, how do I access an unpacked sadness in a way that doesn't make me medicate it, run from it, barrier myself from it, but actually access it in a way that I see growth in my life, both with the Lord and everyone around me. And that's what we're going to look at today with this psalm. We're going to look at that because I, I, I want to remind you, it's probably David. I think it's David that wrote this song. You know, there's some debate about that. And the reason I think it's David is because there are a number of little tells in here. So think about David, even if you're here and you're like, I don't know the Bible very well. Maybe you've heard of King David, the one who uh, defeated Goliath. You know, that old story of David and Goliath. You know, that is past him. The great warrior of David who, had, who, who was so powerful. And we're not taking just warrior like uh, somebody who is good with a rifle and a scope. We're talking hand-to-hand -hand combat. This guy was a beast. He had brought peace to his entire country. He had seen things and he'd had highs and lows in his kingship. And now he's looking back, his strength is weakened. He sees all the things behind him, good and ill. And he's looking to God and saying, God, help me now. Be my refuge when everything has escaped him. And we're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to look at what does it mean to learn to lament? How do we learn to lament and lament well? And then what is our comfort in lament? So simply put, how do we learn to lament? And then what is our comfort in lament? You know, what does lament mean? It, it, let's just kind of back up. Let's define our terms a little bit. So the Bible actually, and um, all throughout it, Old and New Testament, mentions lament. It mentions this word. In fact, there's entire books called, there's a book called Lamentations <laughs> uh, that, that is about lamenting. 
But the word in the Bible, lament, means uh, an interesting thing. And if you look at even then that book, Lamentations, it actually is translated characteristically the word howl. Howl with a, an exclamation point on it. So in other words, when you're lamenting, you can, you can sometimes think about those questions that come. And, and the Psalms do this, and a lot of them. Psalm 13, one of my favorite lamentation Psalms. It says, how long, O Lord, right? There are other ones that say, how can this be? How could this happen? And, and that, that really captures what lament does. When we're really in that place of grief and sadness and suffering, the word how comes up often, and I think lament accesses that. Lament means that. And the psalmist is showing us something here. He's showing us that lament isn't something that we just put over here and deal with outside of our relationships with the Lord and others, or even ourselves. He's saying we, lament is really accessing first that sadness with God, before God. Not just thinking oftentimes, I think we do this with the God and one another. I think we utilize the word, we don't want to be a burden on anybody, a lot in our culture. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to lay this on you. We don't want to come across as needy. But to lament is to ask the question. It's not to throw your burden on someone. It's actually to ask the question and access, what is the sadness, the grief that's actually going on in you? And it means that you don't lament alone, but that you lament within the presence of God. And that's where the psalmist goes. Uh, this psalm, we're gonna jump all over the place with it. But even at the beginning here, I mean, he says, uh, uh, right away. Look, well, verse seven, we'll take a couple of these passages. It says, I've been a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. It's interesting. He begins with saying a portent. What in the world does that mean? It means that at one point he was an example of what it meant to, to live uh, and, and show his life was for God. But now it says, but you are my strong refuge. In other words, he's saying the example of what? <laughs> He's saying the example of not just of happiness or how to straighten out my life, but the example to point myself at even as king who has everything in a row, not just that I'm looking for happiness or to have all my circumstances fit together so I don't have to access sadness, but that I look to you, Lord, in even my highest moments to make sense of both my joy and my grief. It means, what are we really doing with it? What do you do with the how in your life? When you hit that question, where does it go? I mean, think, think of what he says in verse 20 here. He says, you have made me see many troubles and calamities, but you will revive me again. Notice he's not blaming God. He's not saying, how dare you? What do you but he does say how. You have made me see these things. But he's accessing it. He's opening up before him. Think about in the New Testament, and, and sometimes we think of this uh, as like, oh, okay, this is, you know, a psalm. It's a song written. It was, it was part of worship. <laughs> but Jesus in the New Testament does this often. He accesses sadness and grief in ways that sometimes I actually think are really uncomfortable. 
he will weep over a city, literally an entire city. He says, I weep over Jerusalem. What does that mean? (laughs) He's accessing sadness and grief over the entirety of what the city is going through. He doesn't just look at one group of people. He doesn't just look at one certain party. He looks at the whole city and says, Lord, I grieve over this. He, he, he grieves over an individual. There's a friend of his named Lazarus that dies. And there's a moment where it says that Jesus wept. And why is he weeping? Because he loved Lazarus. He's weeping. He's accessing grief and sadness over an individual that he loves. He, he even later on, it shows he, he weeps over death in that same passage. He's, he's accessing anger and frustration and sadness and grief over death itself. Jesus is showing us over and over how to do that. And you know what? He even accesses grief and sadness towards his own heavenly father, towards God particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asks his Lord to to take this cup from him. In other words, Lord, is there any other way than for me to go to the cross? And he hits a depth of sadness that is so profound that it bursts the capillaries in his face that cause his sweat and blood even to mingle in his forehead. Because he is so, as the Old Testament says, one who's acquainted with grief. Accessing sadness is not a bad thing. It's not an unspiritual thing. It's something that calls us to understand who we really are in relationship. And that we look to God to meet that, to be a part of that. And it also draws us inward, not just to look upward. You know, one of the things that was really interesting about this psalm, and some of us in this room, actually, somebody came up to me before the service and said, I really like this psalm. (laughs) Because you know what it talks about? Age. It's just honest about his age. And in the way that he deals with grappling, growing older, verse nine says this. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. There is nothing like when you feel your age and you connect it to some grief and you go, man, this is just not fun. It can spiral inward more. I I remember, uh, actually one of you sent me this article some years ago. And it was an Atlantic article regarding a therapist who is also a mom trying to reach out in, in her article to parents to say, hey, the, the students, the, 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 the young adults, the, the young professionals I'm seeing in my office do not know what to do with sadness. They've never met it. They don't know how to suffer well. It was a fascinating article because as a therapist and a mom, she was trying to kind of unite these things to say, how do we, how do we teach one another to, to grieve well? Because we, we're trying to make everything in life good. 
and everything in life. And, and, and granted, this was right before, this is just before pandemic time. So now all of us are, are using the word a lot, mental health. And it's something that's thrown around a lot on TV and other ways. But how we, actually, let's ask the question, how are we really leaning into the fact that we all are coming out of trauma and need to access that together? What does it look like for us to, to access that? And you know, one of the ways that I think this psalm does it, and it does it like Rembrandt's painting, it begins to say, let's take away all the layers of the flash, all the, 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 the beautiful, perfect lines, and let's show again the rough, just grainy picture of what it feels like. That when we feel our age, we look back on things. It, it's, it doesn't matter how old. There's not a certain age you're looking at. Now, he's talking about feeling his, and seeing his gray hairs, which I'd see more and more, especially in mine, where gray hairs do not respect curly hair, just a heads up. They want to be all straight out, and they're like, get out of my way. And every time I see them, it reminds me, you know what? It's been through a lot. Why do we always talk about the picture? Every president, doesn't matter who it is, there's always the before and after. So much gray. Because there's something about what we see over that time period that really hits the depths. What do we lament over? What regret do we feel about relationships? About our job choice? about our actual personal choices? What are the things that you see in your life that you have tried to maybe wall off so that you don't access sadness towards, but you need to because you're traumatized regardless of whether it's from pandemic stuff or anything else in your life, but we haven't let ourselves access it. The Bible is saying it is important for you to be honest before the Lord and in yourself that these things really cost you. There's a reality to it and it's healthy to access that, to know that we do. And the, and the other part of this is where it goes, and, and we've talked about this in other Psalms, but he talks about others, enemies or accusers or people that are looking upon him for his hurt. I think we could even expand that out, what these enemies are. Uh, enemies here in his passage could be physical. It could be language. But the enemies for us could be myriad of things. It could be an individual, but it also could be anything that impedes on me trying to be happy. Anything that kind of breaks in, our circumstances, anything like that. And you know one of the things I noticed, and, and, and this is me putting myself in the category, okay? I'm not saying it's, it's just my observation, not my being above, is that oftentimes when we have sat with other people and we need to actually have others sit with us to access our grief with us, is that we'll all go around the table and we'll say, here's where I am, here's where I am, here's where I am, and nobody stops to reach in to pick up someone else's grief to hold it and say, hey, let's sit together with so-and-so in this. 
That's a whole new level of that. What, what this is doing, this psalm, remember, this is a psalm used in worship. This is a place where they're to access their grief together, to learn to suffer well together. Not that everything is perfect. And the last thing we want to do is to be a place where the reality of this world is lamenting over real things and then to come into a church and then we, we act like we're all good. Lamenting doesn't mean there's not joy, but it's actually being also real about the sadness. So how do we find comfort in that? How do we actually display the reality of lamenting in comfort? I think it comes with a couple things here that, that are laid out. One is the first three verses say this, and this happens in a lot of passages, and I love what Parker did, and we'll, I'll mention this in a second. He, the songs he chose, so beautiful and perfect, refuge, that word. Listen, look at verse one. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Verse three, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come that you have given the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Think in order for us to learn what it means to suffer well, we need to know where do we go when we suffer? Where do we hide? What is a refuge? Why is God over and over called a refuge or a rock, a place to stand? Because a refuge is a place that you hide. When those in Ukraine were hiding and continually do so from the bombardment of all of the evils and things that are going on in their country, what did they do? They found refuge in subway tunnels and in other places. That is to the degree, what does it mean to find a refuge? But how do you do that in the Lord? How do you find security in him? I think it's a really interesting thing that we need to unpack. In other places in the Psalms, it actually does the opposite to help us understand what that means. Uh, it happens in the New Testament a lot too, that they're often said, hey, those who find refuge, like in Proverbs and other Old Testament books, they'll say, when you find refuge in your wealth, or your family, or things that could be good, what are you doing with those things? Well, you find security in them. You look to them to cause you to know that you're gonna be okay. That hard things may come, but you're gonna be okay. And what it means to look to the Lord as a refuge, it means when you experience fear and shame, the question is, where do you run to hide? The beginning of the Bible begins with when sin enters the picture. In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, when sin enters the picture, Adam and Eve run and hide. And when they run and hide, where do they find security? They cover themselves up, so we're told. What does it mean to find refuge, covering up? What does it mean for you to find that security in the one who actually does hold you and love you? Because here's the thing about wealth. Here's the thing about other things. We can seek it, but it can only hold us back just so much. It doesn't have the strength of the arms to do it because it's not made to. But to be a refuge is to really find ourselves hiding in God to find ourselves in him. 
This is why I like that it says rock or refuge. Notice the other songs that we sang talk about God as a rock. It's not just a rock like, here's a rock. Like a lot of people these days love to have decorative giant boulders and stuff now. It's not just, hey, there's a rock. It's actually saying it, it, it's so sure-footing that even some of the definitions in the Old Testament say, if you were to remove the rock, it actually shakes the earth. That's how important this rock was. I don't know if you've ever been around uh, some of the building, all the new construction. And you, have you ever been around and you feel them dynamite something? And you're in your office and you're like, you're like, whoa. That's how powerful they have to do in order to bust up whatever that rock is underneath that that echoes out so far that it can shake you in whatever building you're in. God is saying, for us to know him as a rock is to place our feet, our surety on him. And it's not, it's not like a spiritual quip. It's actually day-to-day practicing, looking at, hey, where do, I, where do I hide myself today? Do I hide myself in that I'm better than these people? Do I hide myself in the fact that, man, everything's going smooth today? Do I hide myself in the fact that when I turn on my laptop, man, the numbers I see in my account look good? Do I hide myself in the fact that, man, I have gone weeks without making any poor choices? Or is there a real refuge in God himself that we can hide ourselves? One of the books that we read in our house, I don't know if you read this when you were little, was Runaway Bunny. Did you ever read that book? Such a great book. It's a book by Margaret Wise Brown. And there was a little bunny. It's pretty self-explanatory. There's a little bunny in that book that is saying to his mom, hey, I'm going to run away. (laughs) And I'm going to get away from you. And you can't come get me. And it's just sweet because every time the little bunny says, hey, I'm going to run away. And the mom says, hey, I'm going to come find you. He's like, oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to be a fish. And I'm going to be a trout in the stream. And let's see what you can do then, because you're a bunny. You know what she says? The mom beautifully and wisely says, you know what? Well, then I'll become a fisherman. And I'll come find you, and I'll catch you. And little bunny says again, well, yeah, well, then I'll become a rock. She says, you know what? Well, I'll come find you, because I'll become a mountain climber. And I'll scale up and get to where you are. You see, that is the exact kindness. Margaret Wise Brown's <laughs> borrowing from the good news. That, that There is a story of reality that we have tried to hide ourselves or run away in any way we can. The good news of the gospel is that God didn't wait He sent himself. He came himself in Jesus. And he came himself to those who really wanted to hide. Think about the good news of the gospel for those who think there is no way there's good news in light of the lament I feel. In light of the lament, I think God thinks of me. How? 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 But yet God made a way. And he didn't just make a way. 
He came and stood into the sadness himself and grieved and then took it into himself to defeat it. You know what is awesome about this passage? Over and over and over, the consistent practice in this passage, I don't know if you notice, is vocal. There's a proclaiming, a singing. There's even a portion. He's like, I'll praise you with a harp. I'll sing to you with a lyre. You know why? Because we have to access the parts of us and pray to God sometimes, say, Lord, I need you to give me joy. I was talking to one of my dear friends who's a pastor in another place, and I was telling him honestly how grieved I am. This is some months ago. How my heart felt heavy, how I found myself like just teary or crying over things that really didn't have that much sadness because I was trying to figure out what's going on in here. And he said, you know what? One of the things we need to do that's helped me is to actually pray for joy. Pray that the Lord would give us something that, that goes further than just, hey, make my life better or happy or change my circumstances. Pray that he gets into the places that I can't. Because that's how he works. Look, that's what this table is. This table is a reminder to us that God doesn't wait. And it also shows us something that's really profound. This table actually speaks of a sad event. There are parts of this table that are actually a lament in and of itself. If you think about every week, when we talk about it, we talk about body and blood. Those are not things <laughs> that are comfortable things that we talk about outside of this context in this way. It's because God chose so beautifully and wisely to come after us who hide, to say, you know what? I'm gonna let you taste and see that I have tasted your sadness. I have clothed myself in flesh. I have taken up the cross. I have died. But you know what else he also says in this? He says the other part of this is that we taste in this table is that our sadness will end. One of the best songs and musicians out there right now, I think, Sandra McCracken. I don't know if you know who she is. She's an incredible singer. She wrote a song um, called Fool's Gold, and I actually got to hear the song again at some point a few weeks ago. She says this, this line. Listen to this line and listen carefully. She said, if it's not okay, then it is not the end. And this is not okay, so I know this is not the end. Hear that again. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. And this is not okay, so I know this is not the end. We know that this is merely a taste. We know that this isn't the end. But you know what we do know and what she's saying in hope in that song is that there will come an end. And as J.R. Tolkien said, all things sad will come untrue that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Because if he did, we would still just be in our sadness all the time.
There would not be another hand to hold of joy and life. We would just be Good Friday Christians. But what we know is Sunday was real, just as much as real as Friday. Jesus rose from the grave, took your sadness, put it into the depths of hell itself so that you know that conquering every single grief and thing you have so that you may suffer well, just like your savior. Because hope is just as real as any sadness you felt. Praise be to God. Let's stand.